What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on our recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Our regular co-hosts, Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson, are trying to move some speakers that fell off a truck, but we're joined again by our friend Jason Bailey. Hello, Jason. Uh, hello, and in the spirit of the film we'll be discussing... Oh! Oh, I think we went in the red on, on, on this recording very quickly. All right. So last week's show, we talked about The Godfather Part 2, Francis Ford Coppola's sweeping sequel to The Godfather. We were inspired to turn to it and the prequel embedded within its flashback structure by the release of The Many Saints of Newark, a prequel film to the groundbreaking TV series The Sopranos, co-written by Sopranos creator David Chase and series writer Lawrence Connor, and directed by frequent series director Alan Taylor. The film explores the New Jersey of the late 60s and early 70s, making the era look less like the golden age of Tony's memory than a time of turmoil, betrayal, and infighting. Familiar Sopranos territory, in other words. Alessandro Nivola stars as Dickie Moltisanti, the uncle Tony admired as a child and sought to emulate as an adult, We'll talk over the film after the break. When I was a kid, guys like me were brought up to follow codes. Hey, jerk off. What'd you say? What? Antonio Soprano. I wonder if I can talk to you alone for a moment, Mrs. Soprano. On the basis of the Sanford Binet, he's high IQ. You can't prove it by me. He's got a D-plus average. Well, he doesn't apply himself, but he is smart. The results tell us. He's a leader. Ankle dick. Growing up with the family, Takes a toll. Maybe an ambassador of England or France. You're my nephew. My I want to do whatever I can to help you. you may be my gift to you. I want to go to college. I can't get called with shit like this. Look, you take the speakers, right? At the same time, you say to yourself, this is the last time I'm ever going to steal something. It's that simple. Okay, thoughts on The Many Saints of Newark. Uh, Jason, you're a guest. We'll turn to you. Um, It just feels so much like the pilot episode of a prequel series to me. It feels so overstuffed and yet shallow. I went into it very cynically, and and it did not uh, it did not change my mind at any point. It, there, there's something sort of chilling about the promotional subtitle of a soprano story, as mm-hmm. in like this is how we're going to you know uh, beat the dead horse a bit longer. And I guess I mostly came away from it feeling like, you know, like there are things in it that I liked. There are performances in it that are very interesting. There are isolated moments that work, but I never had a sense of what story they wanted to tell beyond a story that sort of winkingly included some characters that we knew. And there are moments throughout there. I really enjoyed James Gandolfini's son and his performances as young Tony. And yet, especially in the early scenes before he takes over, especially when he's a kid, there's just something very baby Yoda about little Tony <laughs> in those scenes and the way that he is, that he's framed and, and, and observes the behavior 
the little Silvio, which was one of the main things I had heard people complain about going in, is really genuinely embarrassing. Like, and I think mostly because little Stevie is just such a distinctive presence and such a strange actor that attempting to emulate his mannerisms in any way is is really going to feel like a nightclub comic doing an imitation of a guy. And there are little things like that throughout, like all of these little winks and like Livia saying, oh, poor you. And, you know, some of these lines that we knew later, you know, I had never really thought about Godfather 2 in these terms, literally, until you guys asked me to do this show and put this pairing together. Like, I had never really thought of Godfather 2 as the beginning of this thing of the idea of the you know the pop culture origin story where we see you know where this little catchphrase or that came from or that sort of thing and i'm not saying we should hold francis coppola responsible for that but thinking of it in those starker terms did make me a little angry at what he had wrought, if nothing else. You know, that that in my head, that always goes back to like the 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 Star Wars prequels, I think mostly because of Patton Oswalt and his bit <laughs> about John Voight's anatomy. But it's so it, throughout this, the, the film, just all of those little Easter eggs are so broad and loud and so clumsy that if he was trying to 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 do something new or or sit, tell some sort of self-contained story it's it's thwarted by those flourishes at at every turn yeah i'll push back a little bit not on the quality of it but i i don't think it feels like a prequel i don't necessarily think it i mean like a, a, a setup for a prequel series i feel like it it plays like kind of a f- failed movie in a way where Chase is you know he is trying to overstuff it I, I and I loved his his first film uh the, the his only film he's made as a director which is not fade away it but it does also have that overstuffed quality it's, it's kind of like he overdeveloped his his plotting muscles on television and couldn't Absolutely. quite pare down uh for this I, I do think it's trying to tell a beginning middle and end of something but I don't think it quite knows what i never really understood why any of this was necessary i guess that said i think there are some really nice touches in it i think leota especially as the second multisanti twin uh the one who's in prison who's a, a jazz fiend who's who's grown philosophical during his <laughs> prison. i yeah. love all those great scenes. great great um, I do like Navola's performance. I think you could also swap in John Bernthal, who would have been uh, equal. He would have been good in that role as well. I think they both had that sort oh, of I like. Kay, I think Kerry Stoll is excellent as well. He is, the, yeah. Those, yeah. Um, and and the 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 scene that really haunts me, despite not particularly caring for the film, is the scene where, where Navola's Dicky Moltisanti kills his lover uh, Giuseppina, his who had had been his father's wife like drowns her and the way that's shot the way that almost like kind of like not accidental but he can't believe what but he's can't believe what he's done after it's over and the, and the, just the way that this body is kind of drifts away and and it's someone who's no one no one's going to care about no one's really going to miss necessarily uh and it was so easy for him i, th- I feel like that kind of captures something about what it is to be a gangster is like realizing what you can get away with and then how little the universe is going to punish you for it i think there's some really nice moments like that that said i i this film mostly just made me angry you know just, see now i now i feel like defending it in a big way against both okay, of you guys so let's, so, let's, so let's i mean it. even even though even though i wrote a mixed review and a, and a, and a red hot uh a new uh <laughs> subsec of the reveal i i i feel feel like you're both being a little bit hard on this film which seems you know very much at cross purposes for sure we haven't mentioned i think what what is really interesting one of the things that's really new about it is it is drawing Chase's interest here, which is which is uh, the riot, which is the mm-hmm. you know and and the racial divisions within uh, Newark at the time. I mean, that's a, a lot of potential it, there. There's uh, a lot of potential, I th- but I think it's also the story that he wants to tell. I mean, that's the story he opens with. But he also kind of abandons it, though. Is it well, that? Well, that's the thing. Is like the, 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 you, you, what you can see so plainly. I think in this in, in is kind of a movie at war with itself, and in, in that right. in that it. And that it has to tick those boxes. It has to satisfy 
fans that Chase's are all always <laughs> felt incredibly ambivalent about anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think, uh, the, you know, the, you could see the last couple of seasons of the Sopranos as being a way of challenging and, and frustrating deliberately those fans right until the very end. The ones who are really kind of there for to see Tony kick some ass. Right, right exactly. Yeah. And, and I felt that, I felt that in the preview audience that I saw it with too. Uh, mm-hmm. We were terrible, by the way, absolutely the worst, <laughs> one of the worst audiences I've seen a film with. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. So, <laughs> wait, wait till the Rick and Morty movie comes out, and then you'll we'll be see. All, we'll see. We'll see. But in any case, uh, you know, I mean, I just appreciated that the you know I appreciate that it's, it is not a successful film. It is isn't a successful film, but I, I but I think it's a it's a film of that tries really hard and is full of interesting details. You know, the the racial aspects of it are. You know, not fully developed, but they are developed in in, in significant ways. Yeah, I mean, if you think about if you well. think about Tony's father coming back from prison, the only thing he can focus on and talk about is the fact that the that the black family has moved in, into the neighborhood. And how could you let that happen? How could people let that happen? It's terrible, you know. And and I just think like that that's you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, and, and the fact you know the fact that the city was you know had a four, what four days of fires and, and, and chaos and things that are quite conflicts that of course are extremely familiar to us in america at at right now so um i i know i appreciated the the gesture there and i also appreciated like the the concept of chris Moltisanti as a baby having his fate sealed and just being able to see that happen and i guess we'll talk about that in connections to Godfather Part Two, because uh, though that as- aspect of it of, of someone's someone having their fate sealed before they can have, can really take any control of it at all, um, is kind of an important part of both films. I think as long as we're also finding things to praise in this film, there's a, there's a stretch that I really liked. Uh, I, I think Fury for Margaret kind of gets saddled with having to do some familiar Olivia Soprano things, but the stretch where she meets with Tony's teacher, played by Talia Balsam, and then tries to be nice to her her son, probably for the first time ever. Makes him the cheeseburger. Yeah, and then the way that falls apart, I think that is is beautifully written and beautifully played. And again, that's that's what's frustrating about this film and kind of makes me mad at is like, you know, if you can give me that, why not give me a movie that kind of co- coheres in a way that that you can have more moments like that kind of flowing from one to the next. Yeah, I mean, I think I certainly admire the ambition that you're talking about and it's and it's willingness to raise those issues and grapple with them. All I would say though is two things. First of all, the riots were one of the areas in which it weirdly felt it felt it felt like that should have been a section that felt most cinematic. And for me, that was the section where it felt most like a television show because for some mm-hmm. reason, the production value of that sequence seemed so chintzy. It seemed mm-hmm. very much like a set that like had been constructed for a TV show as opposed to like it just seemed very small and boxed in and just sort of like they were doing it on the cheap in a way that that, that sequence wanted not to. Yeah. With the race stuff. I honestly felt, look, I'm not saying I need to hear the N-word on screen, but it felt dishonest to me that the sequence that you're talking about when he comes home and the sequence where and the scenes where that aspect of the changes in Newark are addressed pointedly avoid it in flavor of softer language as if they are mm. afraid to make these characters too dislikable. And that the only time we hear that word is on Leslie Odom Jr.'s wife says it early in the film, and Alessandro Nivola says it right before he murders his lover, so you know he's a bad guy right then. And yeah. it felt to me like, if you're going to deal with these issues, you can't soft-pedal them like that. You can't pretend like this, like these attitudes were any less vile or socially friendly than they were. Yeah, that all seems fair to me. I, 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 though, you know, I just think thematically it's interesting that it that, that is there at all, and that totally. and that that and that that character takes up such a huge amount of real estate in a movie that we anticipate to be all about the Sopranos and that and that family that that sure. that we can see these divisions within Newark, this attempt of a black man to run his own numbers racket and run his own gang. And a certain alternative kind of 
entrepreneurial spirit that these two factions have have in common, but uh, but it brings them into conflict. I will say too, I think the big loser here is alan taylor <laughs> i think this is a very poorly directed film hmm. um yeah. uh, and, and i and i also think maybe it's the, the writing to some degree actually the entire thing all around but the directing especially is just they there needed to be somebody with a different mindset of what a movie is and what a tv show is because this thing has that kind of like democratic feeling that a tv show has where it's cutting between all these different subplots and you can't do that with them. You know, that doesn't work very well in a movie a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you, you really have to have a, a strong, clear vision. You know, you, you can't you can't do the A plot, B plot, C plot thing in right. a in a feature film. And and uh and I just like think there's just a lack of detail. Again, that's something we can get into when we talk about Godfather Part Two, but it matters the the richness of these films matters. And and and, yeah. and if you can just contrast the many scenes of Newark to the show, The Sopranos I mean, there's just no comparison in terms of like, in terms of just detail, in terms of like what the bada bing looks like in the back room of the bada bing and every other location of that on that show has been is so thoroughly realized. And this feels so glossy and off a lot of the time. Yeah, that was the last thing I want to talk about before moving on to the comparison is, is how do we feel? What effect, if any, does this have on the legacy of The Sopranos? It feels like to me like it's kind of just going to be a footnote yeah. uh, to it. And beyond one major plot development, uh, there's nothing really that we learn about this, the past, that changes anything about how we look at the, at the, at the, the series. And frankly, I think you can just kind of pretend that didn't even happen if you don't want to deal with it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, no I, I agree. And, and I think even, even the, you know, once the actual Sopranos side of this film, the theme, this, uh, this kind of poisoning of the well, where you have Dickie Moltisante, who was going to try to do things differently than his father and doesn't. And, you know, the, the effect that we, we know his mentorship is going to have on, on young Tony Soprano, who is a trouble, troublesome, but sensitive boy who, whose life could go in a different direction. You know, I mean, that's all, that's fine. It's 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 reasonably well wrought, but that's also the story of the Sopranos. That's the story right. of you know. I mean, of uh, that's Tony Junior in the you know the bottom of the pool. You know, I mean, like that. It's that we could see how toxic, how poisonous a legacy. You know, that, that is being sort of passed along from one elder family member uh, to you know a child um, without them even controlling it. Can I pose a thought experiment here? I mean, this is something that that really did occur to me was I was as I was thinking the, about the movie afterwards. How successful, how much better or not, would this film have been had Chase not been sort of uh, straightjacketed by the responsibility of doing something tied to The Sopranos? And if instead he were able to just tell this story about crime in Newark in the 60s and the racial conflict that you're talking about and build these new characters that are so compelling and not have to make these other connections and feel obligated to include younger versions of these characters and so forth, but instead had like focused on Alessandro Nivola's character, who didn't have to be a Moltisanti, and focused on the the two Ray Liotta characters who are terrific and, and it's a wonderful study in contrast for that actor and so forth and so on. Like, what kind of a movie could this have been? But we're fully aware that in order to get that movie made, he had to make it this other thing. I think you're just telling the story of the movie in terms of the movie he wanted to make and the movie that he had to make. Because I think that I think that I think I think the movie you're describing, I would guess, would be the movie that David Chase wanted to make. And I feel like that is almost transparent in watching this film, that 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 he was at cross purposes, that that there were these elements these payoffs that needed to happen and in though in, in kind of satisfying that you know he ends up kind of you know weakening the movie that he actually wanted to make yeah i think that's fair and i think i think not fade away is so filled with really rich very specific detail of new jersey in the 1960s that i, I think bringing that you know ability to, to you know that, that sense of memory uh, and specificity 
to a different type of story. I think he would have done it would have been well served, but that's not the film. It's not the film got. that got made. No, I mean, and you can got... see it in the trailers. If you look at the trailer for this movie, you think the entire movie is the young Tony Soprano story, you know, and mm-hmm. and the fact that that's how it's being sold tells you quite a bit about the movie they wanted him to make. Yeah, well, well, what can you do <laughs> except to <laughs> put out a sigh of resignation and find ways to compare it to a uh, perhaps a better film? Uh, we will, which we will do. After the break, we're back with Connections. What are you reading? Oh, can't you read a regular comic? I'm a Superman, Jughead. It's about some Jewish girl in the night, and Robin Hood's in it. I know they had Jews back in the Middle Ages. Well, the Bible... Anyway, your mother asked me to talk to you. What, about getting suspended from school? You put that down. So now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I mean, I think the most obvious one is either direction of, of different, you know, golden ages that perhaps weren't as golden as memory. I think there, to get things started, I, I think there is a certain degree of romanticization in the Godfather Part Two's in Godfather Part Two's depiction of turn of the century New York that Definitely. is absent from Many Saints in New York, which I think is a little more jaundiced of about that. You, you can't really call the Godfather films, especially Part Two, rom- uh, you can't accuse them of romanticizing the mafia. But I but I do think there is sort of this idea this is the pure period of, of, of the mafia before things uh, took a turn, uh, and you don't get that in, in Chase and, and Taylor's film. Right. But there, there is the idea that that line of thinking, that way of thinking about the past is present um, in, you know, when we have one of those strangely uh, irregular Christopher voiceovers where he uh, in the transition between young Tony and teenage Tony, where he's talking about Rico statutes and so forth and says, I wish I had come before that. You know, this idea mm-hmm. that 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 things were easier slash better slash more fun, what have you in, in the good old days, even, despite what we might be seeing on screen. Yeah, I mean, these people were not having any fun. I mean, maybe they, they have a little bit of fun at the nightclub or whatever. Right. But uh, uh, but their, their lives seem pretty miserable. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's, you know, the show, The Sopranos itself, also gives a lie to that as well. And it's something that Tony kind of discovers about himself in therapy, too, when it's when he's when they're really getting down to the roots of his, uh, you know, panic attacks and, and, and these moments from childhood, one of which is recreated in the film when he watches, sees his father uh, getting arrested um, and, and experiences that kind of violence for the first time and, and, and just, you know, I think it, it shakes him and, and, and has a profound physical impact on him. He's a very sensitive guy, but that's something that carries over from Sopranos back to many saints of Newark or forward to many saints of Newark, just like that's the impression of just like, this is a, this is um, somebody who turned into the most vile, ruthless, you know, g- gangster. Uh, but he does have a the side of him. He does have the sensitive side, you know, rooted in his childhood, you know. And I think this movie kind of allows you to kind of access that a little more. I mean, just like the the scene with him, you know, this the all the stuff with him, the speakers, these this, these stolen speakers. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of the you know the whole slippery slope thing, which is a big theme in many scenes of Newark. But uh, there's a whole kind of side bit in the film about. Tony not wanting to t- these really nice speakers because he knows, you know, they fell off a truck. He knows they're not legit for him to have. And, and then, and then he reacts later against Dickie by throwing those speakers out the window. So, so at that point in time, he does have this kind of moral sense. Um, but in any case, uh, that is a very long winded way of saying that, no, of course, these, these golden ages are not so, so, so golden. And, and, and I kind of, again, praise the many States of Newark for showing a city that was, you know, on fire mm-hmm. <laughs> at that period, you know, where, where, where there's ash on Nicky Moltisanti's car from all of the f- fires that are break that are breaking out across, around the city. You know, I, I think that's, a, it's, it certainly, certainly does not look like a golden age. Uh, uh, and which is hard when you're, whenever you have a film of the past, nostalgia tends to be, tends to kick in. 
I just wanted to add as a sidebar to what you were just saying. I, as much as I have railed against the Baby Yoda stuff in here, I do love the way that you see how Tony's kind of a weird kid. Mm-hmm. And my favorite little little moment of that was when Dicky comes into the bedroom and he's reading a comic book, and then it turns out it's like it's a comic book version of Ivanhoe. As as opposed to like reading an X-Men comic or what, you know, any other sort of movie in this period would have had. But that's like so in line with like, you know, his his later love of like the History Channel and stuff like that. It it really was a perfectly realized little character touch right there. Yeah, there's like an Edward G. Robinson gangster film in in this movie too right what, what and humphrey yeah, Bogart, no, it's, it's, it's key Largo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah yeah so uh so uh he he, he that the, his interest in in classic films uh you know early yeah no i, I mean you know we can all agree tony soprano vile guy but good good cinephile good good taste in film yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know he's gonna he i remember he, he gets a you know he likes to try to get all the new equipment he wants to watch films at an optimal setting when he sets himself up in the you know gets kicked out of the house and sets himself yeah. out up in the uh pool house or whatever he's a pretty sweet setup he, he no, no no motion smoothing for Tony Soprano. No. he no. turns that off no. no and a nice nice connection i remember this in an early season they were watching the godfather movies on dvd before they had actually been released on dvd right uh, right I don't know why I remember things like this. I can't remember my kids' birthdays on the wrong day, but I, <laughs> I can. The DVDs fell off a truck. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I do think that slippery slope idea that, that Scott brought up is, is another strong connection between these two projects as, as well, because Vito's actions, you know, it, I guess where you think they become unjustified. Is it says something about who you are? You know, I mean, is holding a gun for for his new friend is, is that is, is that really so bad? Is is taking this rug from someone who obviously has way more than they can they need? Is that is that so so? And certainly is is, is exact. You know, using crime to exact justice in a neighborhood that appreciate kind of is appreciative of your efforts, even if they are afraid of you. You know, that you can maybe you can justify that. But at a certain point, though, you know, your kid ends up, uh, you know riddled with bullets of by, by a highway by a toll gate or wherever it is in the in the godfather there's a line you cross and there are consequences for that well and it's so painstakingly those first few sort of uh moves into into crime are so carefully painted as things he's doing for his family as things he is mm-hmm. doing for the financial well-being for the health of his children it's it's very carefully crafted as this as it is all for family the the theme of family this is what i have to do to keep my family secure and safe and so forth yeah i mean that's of course you know a major connection between these movies too is this is um fathers and sons and certain like yeah what what gets passed on you know the, the dreams that these men have for their children particularly their sons and how those dreams are kind of are, are corrupted. Um, you know, they, they can't, they cannot, they cannot through their criminal actions set up a world in which their children are going to eventually be prosperous and legitimate themselves. I mean, the, 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 there's there's going to be a point in which you know they, they either corrupt their child or they put their child in terrible danger. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, that, and that's kind of you know that that was that was the big theme with the Sopranos too. I mean, the Sopranos is about a by appearances a a well-to-do suburban family in in um in uh, new jersey and uh you know the, you know of course <laughs> they're uncommon family and and uh you know the things that tony does to to uh, for the people that, that he is closest to um all of it falls apart i guess meadow does okay but uh who knows despite what yeah she has to watch her father get killed at the end but the whole family has to watch they maybe they all get murdered yeah maybe no i don't i don't think meadows actually headed toward a great future one way or the other at the end of that series but that's that's a whole other it's a whole other podcast um i one other thing that you know they have in common is is both these projects depict how crime is just entwined with certain moments in american history uh we get the equivalent of the key father key father or is it is it based on the key father hearings or different hearings i'm not not quite sure but you know we we get 
the the mafia's moment in the spotlight where it becomes a public issue and you know this is more there are no real legal consequences for it we also get the the, the events in newark the protests and the, and the fires and the looting and and so on it, but it's also this is serves as a cover of crime it, it's in some ways in, in changes the direction of of, of crime uh, i think it's, it's interesting the way that both of these handle it and, and i think the mini states of newark is kind of on to something in showing how this action can provide a cover for crime uh, as well, I, even if I don't think it's all that well developed. Yeah, I, no, I think you're right. I think you know, and and that I think is one of the things I've always enjoyed about the Godfather movies in general is just the sort of cheerful intermingling of real historical events. Um, the uh, some of the Vatican stuff in the third film, especially, gets really juicy there. But yeah, I think you know, understanding the history of Newark, understanding the history of race in Newark is key to that thread, and and the degree to which it is it is worked in is very Godfather esque. Yeah, I, I would agree. And also, I mean, you know, there there are barriers to Italian Americans uh, that are also made apparent in Godfather Part Two as well of of just of the senator basically you know saying that he doesn't like their kind mm-hmm. you know it's not even like and, and, and that certainly implies more than how Michael Corleone specifically does business or how what his business is it is just like I you know it's it's a lot more just straight up you know racist than that and and so I guess the, those two you know in america you have that these kind of the struggle of racial factions that are that are at different degrees i guess of of uh, face different degrees of hostility from white america right uh, and uh mm-hmm. and um yeah and that's what you get here with the, the leslie odom jr character is somebody who has the same drive and entrepreneurial will and and you know and ruthlessness i suppose it takes to start a gang to build a, a business uh to to you know to do the, the numbers game uh on on his own and but he's doing it in a place where um there is just tremendous hostility towards him simply because of his race and it's it's a much more it's a much more difficult process for him to try to establish himself than it, than it would be for members of of the of a more established uh, crime family. So this is almost more connection to The Godfather Part 1, although I think the idea is resonant in both of them, but there is a moment in the the many sense of Newark where it's like, you know, one character basically tells another, I forget the specifics, like, you know, you, you know, you don't want to make even more number, more money than numbers. It's, it's heroin, uh, which is kind of has an echo of Godfather Part 1 uh, when when the Corleone family opposes entering the right, narcotics yes. trade as well, there there is kind of this idea that there's it's innocent up to a point, or at least or or at least forgivable up to a point. Do you see that idea ex- explored in Godfather Part Two as well? Because I feel like at that point they've already crossed the Rubicon. You know, it's it is already just kind of there is there is no kind of justifying what the family business has become. But I wonder in many states in Newark, it almost the the, the way the numbers. Uh, game is run and controlled, and the moment when when uh, McBrayer, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, uh, sees the control of certain certain neighborhoods is so violent, it almost kind of wants to push back against that notion that there was ever a moment when this was justifiable. I mean, I think that's true, but I think it also, I, I think you're right that it is making the same kind of division between sort of like victim and victimless crime. Sure, um, and the way in which the numbers is handled in that film is a lot like the way that you know sort of more harmless ideas like gambling are handled in the Godfather films. That you know that numbers is something that's so innocent that even these kids are doing it. You know, and the sort of uh, the that kind of really wonderful tiny scene in the uh, the the black owned bodega where he's sort of talking about numbers and fate the the proprietor with the nurse who's in you know getting her number for the day i think mm-hmm. it, i think you're right that it is it is really showing that you know the the sort of the degrees of morality in crime are, are very present in both of these universes and the sort of the idea of where that where that flip occurs is something that's considered and I think for different people occurs at different points. But in, in Godfather Part Two, I think there's even kind of 
kind of gives a lie to the idea that, that vice is okay. I mean, not only do you, or at least justifiable or, or victimless, because sure. not only do you get the dead prostitute, but you know, a couple of points out the location there is a brothel that you fly into by by private plane. So these women are effectively this is their entire existence yeah. is being inside this brothel. Uh, it, it is, it is, uh, it's, he described the, it, it, wanting to depict that because he found it creepy and it is creepy. It's extremely creepy. I think that the Godfather part two was a pretty important text for the many saints of, of, of Newark and the Godfather uh, in general for the Sopranos too. And for the Sopranos. But I mean, this is a prequel and you are dealing with, with the origins of certain characters. And I think there is that, obsession that interest that keith brought it up in and what we were talking about the godfather part two and and sunny and the rug and everything like that of just like these children that you're trying to do so much for being we know their fate is being sealed we have seen the sequel you know we have seen the future we know what is going to happen to these characters even if christopher wasn't in voiceover we know what would happen we that's right yeah exactly chris chris yeah he doesn't necessarily he comes out and says it but but uh this is the guy who killed me i mean it's it's maybe a little less subtle but nonetheless powerful uh you know of having like I mean, having him react the way he does when when he first meets to- Tony, as when, when he actually is a literal baby, and kind of doesn't doesn't vibe well. <laughs> Tony, yeah, I think that's that's not a bad moment, and then they kind of oversell it with the some babies come from the from the other side with knowledge of what's going to happen right. to them or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. Why do that? It's right. Yeah. You know, it's clear that you yeah. know he we all we we know if it's baby Christopher. And we yeah. we've already been told we we not only do we know from the series but we we've already been told in voiceover at the beginning of the film that that couple Tony's of times kills uh, Christopher Moltisanti. We we don't necessarily you know we can see his reaction to Tony as being enough without without it actually being said. It ju- it just overdoes it, and I feel like that's part where the comparison it is not. You know, I think we kind of got into some interesting nuances with many scenes in New York, but that's any attempt to compare it to what The Godfather Part Two does with its flashback sequences is it really falls apart because you do get a lot of the same stuff in The Godfather Part Two. You do get young Clemenza and and, and young Abe Vigoda. I'm forgetting the name of the character, real yeah. young Abe Vigoda. Young, you know, very popular CBS series. Uh, young Abe yeah, Vigoda. <laughs> I uh, mean. I, and, I will say Coppola is not entirely blameless here in the sort of in the baby Yoda stuff. Like, you know, there, there is a, the degree to which we work up to the first utterance of, uh, I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse. And the way that we circle around that there is a very like Bart Simpson's classmates leaning in meme to (laughs) the, the, the the work up to that. Yes. Yes. Very much so. You know, and I'm, again, I'm not blaming him, but he's certainly laying the groundwork for our, our current young Sheldon, uh, culture. That's all I'll say. This is a little bit of a sidetrack from from format here, but but I just let's briefly it's relevant though. Let's let's talk about prequels. I mean, how many work, and why do, why do why do why do we keep going at them? Because I think there's a handful of prequels that really do work. Better Call Saul is a great example. I mean, I think maybe that's a case where if it does work, it, you know, that's an example of it working so well that it kind of justifies the continued attempt to do more prequels. But it's it's kind of a baffling thing to pursue given how rarely it works out i mean better call saul is incredible but it's like that one is also like let us show you a side of this character the development of this character that you don't know you just don't know you don't know where this guy came from and how he came to be who he was i thought going into that show that we are going to get you know something lighter some sort of of like shaggy dog type of Mm -hmm. comedy rather than a complete and devastating (laughs) tragedy that it ended up being that it has ended up being um, but it is, so I think you really have to show us something new. You can't just be plugging in, you know, the Easter eggs or whatever things or little hints of what this person is going to become. It's just, you know, because there's not a lot of tension. And again, you know, we, you, Jason mentioned it in the previous episode, but, but that, that Patton Oswalt bit about Star Wars, the Star Wars prequels is just has it right. I mean, you know what, you know, he wants a bowl of ice cream and, and instead he gets, you know, rock, rock salt. salt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and I, 
to, to, to further to that point, like when I was watching Godfather two and they were doing the scene at Ellis Island, I was like, Oh God, is this what that terrible scene in solo is supposed to be like referencing <laughs> or thought about that, yeah. paying homage right. to or something? Yeah. yeah. No, this is a I great moment. I there's a great moment. And it, and it pays yeah. off again when he, when he finally comes back and kills the yep. guy who killed his parents and his, and his brother. Uh, yeah. That was fun. Yeah, you know, because he guys laughs at him being named Corleone. Mm-hmm. Incredible. No, I think Better Call Saul is one of the few examples, and I think one of the reasons, I think honestly, seriously, one of the reasons that it works, you're, you know, it, it surprises us with tone. It's also an origin story about a decidedly secondary character, about someone who is very much on the fringes of the original property, as opposed to most of the unsuccessful ones that we can think of are about how this specific lead character, beloved character, primary character became who they are. And I think that's where a lot of them fall apart because you get stuck in those sort of expected, you know, callback slash call forward uh, conversations. I'm just skeptical of the whole prequel idea. I I, I Google good prequels. (laughs) What do you got? I'm already, already arguing with this list. Well, Couple places have listed the good, the bad, and the ugly as a prequel, which I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't buy that no at all. Uh, it's, not, it's a prequel to, to, to nothing. But um, but let's see. I mean, Batman Begins. It doesn't count. It's, it's the beginning of a new no, series. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a film called The Godfather Part Two. Can't that sounds like a oh, that's a good one. Though, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a short. It's a it, you, you have to scrape a little, uh, quite a bit actually, to get to yeah. get to the good prequels. You know, Temple of Doom but, is even that. That's a little arguable because you know I, it's not my favorite film in that series for sure. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the the widely beloved. As long as mass entertainment is motivated and financed on the strength of intellectual property we're going to keep getting these it's it's as certain as the day is long there's no getting around it it's another way to yield more quote-unquote content out of things that people know and like and recognize and that's where we're at so thankfully the end of that era is in sight we'll be out of it soon yeah i mean i mean the 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 new model is just really is just making an incredibly weird film and then releasing it one <laughs> for one week one theater at a time one city at, at a time yeah I'm, I'm well right now lamb lamb looks like a strange little uh um art house horror adjacent folktale but but when the lamb cinematic universe kicks in well, I, I see the prequel to that i got a lot of questions <laughs> i do have questions about <laughs> lamb as well well we've moved on from from the godfather Part two to talking about lamb which might be uh, a digression upon a digression which is probably a good sign that it's uh, we can wind this segment down. The Godfather Part 2 is rentable through the usual streaming services and of course continues to be available on Blu-ray and DVD and there's really nice editions of of the whole Godfather series on uh, Blu-ray and DVD with tons of extras including the commentary I keep referring back to. Francis Ford Coppola, not all directors give good commentary but but Coppola does. He's, he's a good one. Uh, the Mini States of Newark is in theaters at least as we record this and is also playing on HBO Max. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show where we catch each other up on films or film-related items that you may want to seek out too. So Jason, what in the film world would you recommend right now? I've really been enjoying the output of a a very small indie uh, boutique Blu-ray label called Fun City Editions, which is not connected to my book or podcast, Fun City Cinema, was weirdly just sort of coming together around the same time. But they're putting out some really wonderful uh, little scene gems from the past last month they put out an incredible edition of um rancho deluxe which i had never seen and which absolutely knocked me out uh they've got one out this month that i've really enjoyed it's a a three movie set called primetime panic it's three tv movies from the early 1980s dreams don't die with trini alvarado uh death ride to osaka with jennifer jason lee and Freedom with Mayor Winningham, all of which are very good. Uh, Freedom especially is great. Uh, This really terrific character drama um, directed by Joseph Sargent, who did The Taking of Pelham 123, which is one of my favorite movies, and really has the vibe of like an early 90s indie movie. 
and really struck me as I was watching all of these films, but that one in particular, that our idea of the TV movie got so kind of corrupted by the sort of sordidness slash trashiness of them in sort of the back half of the 80s and the 90s. But at, at, a, at a really interesting point in the 70s and into the early 80s, I feel like these were filling a role that the independent cinema of those later eras filled where, you know, they were telling sort of smaller stories, younger filmmakers on the way up or, or older filmmakers kind of on the way down were getting shots at, at, at doing some interesting things. I enjoyed all three of the movies in this set, like I say, but that one in particular, Freedom uh, with Mayor Winningham, just excellent. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, I'm looking at their site now. I remember when when that project first launched, they did Alphabet City, which looked interesting. I'd never I'd never seen it before, but but they've put out some really good stuff. Like I love yeah. Smile, the Michael Richard movie. Wonderful. Uh, I may, yeah. have to, may have to go order that after after uh, we finish recording. Rancho Deluxe, I have not seen it. It sounds really interesting. And, it's and great. it looks like they're putting out Radio On. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, it's a really interesting movie. It's kind of like this Vim Vendors esque. I think he's actually an executive producer on it. Uh, uh, journey through a road trip through late seventies Britain uh, in in the punk era. It's got a great soundtrack. It's a it's a, it's a neat movie. Um, Sting's in it too. Um, if that's a selling point. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So I I watched that one last weekend and and it it really blew me away a lot a lot of really good stuff in there. Uh, Keith, what are you watching? So I watched by coincidence. I was checking out Criterion Channel's uh, neo noir series and I watched a film. I'd just been in one of those films I've been going to see for for years. I've uh, never gotten around to, which is Across 110th Street. Oh uh, which yes. Is- it turned out to be quite relevant to our discussion today because it, it is a huge part of it is about the conflict between uh, some black criminals and the and the Italian mafia uh, a few years after and in New, in New York not not Newark a few years after the events of Many Saints in New York but nonetheless uh, you know kind of the same thing but it is it's a uh, this really gritty crime story that kind of takes a an approach that would not would not be out of place in prestige television where there's a central event which is the robbing of a of, of a of a meeting of exchange of money between uh, some some black criminals and the mafia uh by just a, a group of of three black men who see an opportunity and grab it but then from there you get what happens to them? What happens within the the Italian uh, uh, mafia uh, criminal you know, criminal organization? What happens with the, the black gangsters that are already there? And what happens with the police uh, characters who are the closest to the thing the film has? The closest that the film has to focal characters are played by by Anthony Quinn and Yaffa Cotto, um, who you know, in two very great performances, Quinn playing a kind of old school quite quite racist if in some ways well-meaning policeman and and uh kato playing his uh someone who's up and coming who is um assigned to become his partner they become kind of reluctant partners who kind of come to an understanding uh there's so much this is where i'm going to throw to back to you jason there's so much new york detail in this a shot in in harlem in the early 70s at a at a pretty rough time in that borough's uh, history where you get a lot of, uh, of period detail. And it really does look like there were not lo- much in the way of sets. A lot of this was shot on location. Even the interiors, like the, the police stations, seem to be, um, it just seems to be a found location. I, I don't know if that's the case or not. M- maybe you do? No, it is. Yeah, they that was all shot entirely on location. And it's a movie I always bring up when people ask me about sort of underrated or under-discussed uh, New York movies. And frankly, the 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 thing that I think is, uh, if I may suggest a different double feature, even from your uh, from what you're saying, is I've always thought that there's a really interesting conversation happening between that movie and the French connection. Mm, yeah, it almost plays like an answer record to that one, just in, especially in terms of of the Anthony Quinn character, who really could be Popeye Doyle a few years on, but has this Yafit Koto character to sort of puncture uh, the presentation of that as being sort of what it takes and the, the you know, what, what you, the, the kind of cop you have to be in New York dealing with these people um, and sort of uh, lays waste to those ideas. Uh, God, it's just a terrific movie. And um, mm-hmm. 
Paul Benjamin, uh, just incredible performance, who is one of the corner men in Do the Right Thing, plays one of the uh, robbers in this and has uh, a, a sort of monologue of of economic and social despair that's mm-hmm. just one of the most devastating things you will see in a movie period. Yeah, you really do get he does. He's really effective at conveying a sense of a character who has who who feels like he has no other options and most likely uh, has no other option. We should mention the director is, is Barry Shear, who is um, really as, as much of a, you know, the definition of a journeyman uh, who kind of went yeah. to the world of, of television. And it, it, it is in some ways, it feels like in the best way, in the best way possible, it feels like a 70s crime TV show uh, at, done at a higher level. Yep. Uh, but he also, you know, he, he would go from that to, you know, I'm looking at his, his credits now, you know, Ironside and McLeod. Uh, he did direct a, a favorite film of mine, uh, Wild in the Streets, the absolutely insane late 60s film about the first teenage president. Um, but that almost seems like an outlier in, in, in his career. Uh, Scott, how, how about you? What, what have you seen lately? I've been seeing a lot of films. Uh, I did um, a piece for The Reveal, our new newsletter, about catching up with the Metacritic top 10 films of the year, of which I had seen one. <laughs> so, so it was kind of a confession to being a very lazy person. One at the time, I mean, now it's populated by a lot of things I've seen and things that are coming out soon that were in New York and other places. But I, but, but I was just like, I knew that I had slacked in staying caught up with films. You know, it was a, I'm a freelance writer. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, I do what is required of me. And then I, you know, I spent a lot of the early part of the year doing full season rewatches of The Sopranos and Mad Men and watching a ton of basketball and just not really engaging with, with films uh, much more than what we were doing for this podcast, a little bit more maybe than that. But um in any case, I, I caught up with a lot of things, but the, the most shameful thing that I did not see was one of the films that was nominated for, for Best Picture <laughs> last year and won uh, Best Actor. And I had been, I, I had assumed, it, despite uh, Keith and other other people telling me, you know, no, me. this is a good film. Why, what are you doing? You need to see this film. My assumption is that this is just going to be a film play with Anthony Hopkins um, and that I would be, I just catch it at some other point. What's the big, what's the big rush? Is this, is this really going to be, you know, one of the best films of the year? And then I, and then I watched it and it's like, it was, it's my favorite of all of the nominees. This is the father I'm talking about. Actually, I mentioned the name of the movie called by Florian Zeller called the father. It blew me away. Um, it would have been a film that I would have put, I think at number five on my top 10 list where I to remake it again. It's got a lot more going for it than the Anthony Hopkins performance, though that performance is exceptional along with the other performances of the film by Olivia Coleman and by, by Imogen Poots and by Rufus Sewell and then some other really fine performances in that movie. You know, it is a familiar story. We have seen narratives about people having dementia and, and, you know, the, the devastation of that. What we have not seen what this movie shows us is uh, what it's like from that person's perspective, that sense of disorientation of not knowing who, you, you know, where you are, what's yours, uh, you know, who, who certain people are. And, uh, you know, we, we know how devastating it is from the other side of that. Um, I guess there was that Julianne Moore movie where we could see her kind of losing her way. But in any case, there's a really good episode of, uh, of Castle Rock, of, uh, uh, the one real, real standout episode of, of a sure. So show. maybe it's done before, but I, I felt like this was done with a tremendous amount of, of heart and also, it has moments of, of cruelty that reminded me a, a bit of Amor, the Michael Haneke film, but it is not in itself a cruel film in quite the same way that, that Haneke's film is. You know, it Are you ha- saying that there's more warmth to a film than, than, not, than, than <laughs> Michael Haneke tends to bring? But it's, still, but it's still the same kind of power. I mean, yeah. you remember the slap in Amor, and here there are a couple of lines two lines in particular that have that kind of power where it's like, wow, that just, it just knocks you back with the, with the, the, the cruelty of it. But um, it is a film that is ultimately very sympathetic and affectionate towards these characters. It earns, it earns and, and, and has a, a, an incredibly emotional ending. I loved it. I just really loved it. The father it's, it's like, I think you can, unfortunately, you know, you have to have Showtime or still pay 20 bucks to see it. It's still mm-hmm. not the most accessible film, which was another problem. When it, it came was coming out kind of late too. Oh no. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of things and it's, it's Sony pictures classics and you're thinking, ah, they've done film. And I just, I don't know. I, I think it's really great. So the father, uh, I'd recommend seeing if you haven't already, if that happened to be the, like the, why did Chadwick Boseman not win? I mean, like Chadwick Boseman is incredible in that movie, but Anthony Hopkins is, this is a, this is a top three performance. Yeah, from him it, too, it's I think. up there. 
Jason, did you see it? I did. Yeah, cosign on everything he said, but I I took I it didn't seem urgent to me either. It seemed like a movie I'd seen before. Uh mm-hmm. I watched it on Blu-ray for the Blu-ray column I do for the playlist and absolutely took my breath away for in for in many of the same ways that you're talking about. It's just the that approach, the simplicity of it is is it's so elegant, but it's so devastating and so effective. And I mean, and I think if we if we were to do a pairing with that, and we've already done this one before, but if we I do, a pa- I'd pair it with like Memento, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. like that. And yeah. I think, and I think that if I knew that, if I knew like going in, like, yeah, you, you, you know, if somebody told me, you know, Scott, you know, this this film will probably remind you a little bit of Memento, then that would maybe maybe that would have changed my mind a little bit. Maybe I would think like, oh wow, that why would it do that? It's just a film yeah. play with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, good stuff, though. Uh, so, the father, if you if you slept on it like like I, I did, uh, sleep on it no longer. It's really good. Yeah, well, good stuff to check out. We'll be right back after the break. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will be released on October twelfth and October nineteenth. Scott, what do we have on tap? In an oppressive desert terrain that's nonetheless strategically precious. Outside forces clash while suppressing the native population. That is, until a young, rebellious outsider comes swooping in and leads an uprising. That's the basic plot of Frank Herbert's seminal sci-fi novel Dune, half of which has just been adapted by Denis Villeneuve, the director of Arrival in Blade Runner 2049. It's also the plot of Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's 1962 epic starring Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence, a misfit British army lieutenant who's sent to the desert during World War I to assent Prince Faisal in the Bedouins' revolt against the enemy Turks. As Lawrence ingratiates himself to various Arab tribes and unites them in a common cause, he's celebrated as a hero, even while he's distanced from Britain's long-term colonial ambitions for the country. In Dune, Timothy Chalamet plays a similar misfit of destiny as Paul Atreides, who gets himself involved in a war on Arrakis, a planet that produces a coveted spice called Melange. Paul takes a particular interest in the Fremen, an indigenous people who have managed to thrive on a desert planet with very little water and lots of giant sandworms. So please join us for our next pairing on Lawrence of Arabia and Dune, and as Phil Collins might say, no still suit required. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion on The Godfather Part 2, The Many Saints of Newark, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Jason, where can we find you? The book is called Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, out October 26th from Abrams Books. Uh, The accompanying podcast is also called Fun City Cinema. And if I may uh, direct the Next Picture Show audience to the second season premiere, uh, which is called Tribute in Light. It is about 25th hour, and it features both Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias in a conversation about 25th hour and 9-11, which was inspired by uh, both of you guys' wonderful pieces on the design about that film and and the the all of the ephemera surrounding it uh so yeah those those are my main things i'm on twitter uh at jason dash bailey all spelled out uh you'll find my other links there scott uh yeah well you can find me on twitter at scott underscore tobias and uh you can find me at the the reveal uh with the uh substack that i do with keith that's the reveal dot substack.com that's where a lot of my energy and, and most exciting work i guess the works i'm most excited about goes into into the substack right uh i also write for the new york times and, and guardian and, and vulture and and other outlets i'm the editor-in-chief of oscilloscopes musings uh which you know should have another piece up pretty soon uh keith how about you oh i'm a freelance writer you can find my me on twitter at kfips 3000 uh where i link to a lot of stuff where i write for places like gq uh the ringer vulture tv guide and also as scott mentioned uh the reveal which is the reveal.substack.net it's 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 just dot pure, com. did you say net, net. net oh no it's not Good net Lord, it's com. Well, i'm sorry i started another tv substack. That's that's substack.net. Like, yeah. so, you know, you can go to the dot com, but the the real stuff is at <laughs> substack.net. No, don't confuse them. Uh, the reveal.substack.com. Uh we're doing a lot of fun stuff. If you if you like uh, if, you, if you like what we've done in the past, you will probably enjoy the Substack. Uh, you can find our absent coast, uh, Genevieve Kosky, at 
Twitter at, on Twitter and at Genevieve Kosky. She's a senior TV editor at Vulture. Uh, you can find Tasha Robinson, who's a film and TV editor at Polygon. You, uh, you can find her work there and also on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content on patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake jakes for his assistance producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcast please tune in next time